0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Progressive Christian Voices, today and tomorrow. My name is Brian Elaine. I'm the founder of Compassionate Christianity and Writing for Your Life. It's a pleasure to host this series of prominent progressive Christian authors, all of whom have been published by Broadleaf Books or other 1517 media imprints, including Fortress Press and Beaming Books. So today is the final webinar in this series of uh, four that we've had this month. Uh, but we also plan to have additional webinars in January, so stay tuned to hear more about those. Um, we'll announce the dates and the speakers um, down the road. So joining us today are Angela Danker, Jennifer Farmer, and Carl McColman. Angela Danker is a Lutheran pastor and veteran journalist. She's written for many publications, including Sports Illustrated, The Washington Post, and Fortune Magazine. Angela has appeared on CNN, BBC, and Sky News to share her research on politics and Christian nationalism in the United States. Her book, Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump, was the 2019 Silver Forward Indies Award winner for political and social sciences. Jennifer R. Farmer, also known as the PR Whisperer, is a writer, trainer, and activist communicator. She's the author of First and Only, How Black Women Navigate Work and Life, and also Extraordinary PR, ordinary budget, the strategy guide. She's the host of award of the award-winning United Methodist women's podcast, Faith Talks, where she interviews women of faith on their commitment to social justice. Her work has appeared in publications such as The Blavity, Society for Nonprofits, Chronicle of Philanthropy, CNN, The Root, HuffPost, Post, PR Daily, and the Red Letter of Christians. Jennifer is the founder of Spotlight PR, a boutique firm specializing in communication strategy and training for leaders and groups committed to social and racial justice. Carl Coleman is a contemplative writer, speaker, teacher, soul friend, and storyteller. He's the author of numerous books, including The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, Answering the Comple- Contemplative Call, and Unteachable Lessons*. His latest book, Eternal Heart, was published in the summer of 2021, and Carl's book, Befriending Silence, won the 2015 Georgia Author of the Year Award in the field of inspirational religious writing. Brian McLaren says, if you don't know about Carl McColman and his work, you should. <laughs> That's a great endorsement. Carl's writing appears on numerous websites, including Patheos, Huffington Post, Day One, Contemplative Life, and The Medium. Carl co-hosts the Encountering Silence podcast with filmmaker Cassidy Hall and theologian Kevin Johnson. So to all three of you, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm really excited to be able to you know, share some time uh, speaking with you. So thanks so much. Good to be here. This evening, I'm going to be asking the panelists several questions. Um, but if any, you know any of the attendees would like to ask a question, that's perfectly fine. The best way to do that is to type it into the Q&A function in the Zoom portal and I'll relay that to our speakers. So um, maybe we can each start by having um, each of you tell us a little bit about your most recent book. And um, let's go in the order that I did the uh, introductions, which is the same of alphabetical order by your last name, sorry. Uh, So, Angela, why don't you talk a little bit about yours? I mean, that certainly had a big impact uh, pretty broadly in these days.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, my book, uh, Red Sick Christians, came out in August of 2019, and of course, the entire world has shifted on its axis uh, since since August of 2019. Uh, So the good news is that uh, Broadleaf is actually, we're putting out a new edition of Red State Christians uh, that's coming out next fall uh, to sort of look at the American Christian political landscape, uh, not only the research that I did uh, throughout 2018, which involved traveling across the country, uh, interviewing Christians in red states and red counties, uh, Christian leaders, Uh, Some of these trends of militaristic Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, Um, but then this new edition is going to factor in these important events uh, in this political ideology and in American Christianity uh, that have continued to veer towards uh, religious nationalism and Trumpism Uh, So I'm going to be looking at specifically uh, George Floyd. I live only three miles away from where George Floyd was killed uh, and the movement for racial justice and the backlash movement to that within white Christian nationalism. I'm going to be looking at uh, COVID and the ways that COVID has really forced Christians to come face to face with what does it really mean for us to be pro-life and the callousness with which many Christians have have dealt with. The loss of hundreds of thousands of American lives to COVID, um, and how we've prioritized economic gains over over human life, uh, and then finally uh, the January sixth insurrection and the violent attempt at uh, really an overthrow of American democracy that was very much shaped by these same trends that I first researched in Red State Christians um, and how we see religious ideology being militarized uh, on the right, on the political right in America um, and continue to be shaped by, I'm with you tonight from my church, which is in rural America. I'm surrounded by uh, Trump signs (laughs) and so very much um, part of my, what I'm living also in my ministry.
0: Wow. Well, that's really going to be powerful, Angela. And I'm so glad that you're continuing that work, um, you know, to shine a light on some of this incredible dysfunction that's going on within our country. is just ridiculous, but, you know, you. helping people understand what's going on that may not know at the level mm-hmm. that, you know, you're researching, I think is really, really important. So thank you for very much for that. And we'll, we'll talk more about, you know, some of these issues later here later.
2: Thank
0: you. So, Jennifer, how about you?
2: Sure. So, thanks for creating space for this conversation. Um, So, as you shared at the outset, I'm a social justice publicist, and I'm also uh, an author who thinks critically about issues of race, gender, religion, uh, and also leadership. And I wrote First and Only, A Black Woman's Guide to Thriving at Work and in Life, uh, to document what it's like to show up in different spaces as the first and, and the only, or the first or the only. And what I realized is that black women who show up as the first or the only, they're celebrated in some quarters, and then they're viewed with skepticism in others. And so within the community, people may feel like, oh, you know, this person has achieved great milestones. Think about someone like a Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris. There was a ton of celebration. But the underbelly of that celebration is that, you know, when you are the first and only, you are held to different standards. You are always striving. You never get to the point as a Black woman where you can let your guard down. You're always fighting. You're always pushing. And so I wanted to capture uh, that dynamic. And I wanted to write a book that spoke specifically to the experiences of Black women. A lot of times with Christian books and also with leadership books, black women and other people of color we're told to find ourselves through the eyes of someone else who has not walked our path and so that can be very isolating you can wonder you can read all these books i have a ton of books behind me you can consume this content and think okay once i'm finished i've arrived only to walk into different spaces or to enter different spaces and be questioned about how you style your hair how you present what you wear, how you rear your children, the conversations that you choose to have or that you don't choose to have. And I wanted to name that explicitly. I also wanted to say that one of the things that makes this nation unique is when we all show up as our authentic selves and bring our authentic voices. And by bringing first and only, um, by offering this this work, what I wanted to say is there's space um, in the christian tradition their space and leadership traditions to hear from authors who are different to hear from authors who are willing to say this is what it's like to be me and so my audience for first and only first it was it was black women and then it was women of faith and then you know another audience was people who want to know more and sometimes you know it's difficult to have these conversations And so I wanted to to offer readers an inside look. First and only came out in February of 2021. It will also be released via paperback version in the fall of 2022. I'm very excited about that.
0: So you're another COVID, you know, book launch, you know, veteran. I mean, which, uh, you know, I I always feel a lot of empathy with folks, you know, that had to do that. And, you know, that's why I started all the book interviews that, you know, we did one of, you know, when your book came out. Because it's like. You know, can't do book tours, can't do book signings, can't travel. I mean, all these kinds of things, right, you know, that you would normally be doing as an author to get the word out. So, you know, I want to help try to support <laughs> that as best I can. And, um, you know, since you do so much work with other social justice folks, too, you know, uh, we need to follow up with, you know, some other things that I'm doing and, and, and chat a little bit about, uh, you know, potentially additional ways to collaborate. So, but thank you, Jennifer, for your work and for joining us. Mm-hmm. And so, Carl, how about you?
3: Well, I'm just in awe of of both Angela and Jennifer, and um, I feel like I'm sitting at the table with the cool kids right now. <laughs> um, my, my book is written, you know, forgive me for using a cliche, but I think both of you have these wonderful kind of Martha statements, and my book is more of a merry book. Um, Eternal Heart is written out of my own kind of lifelong interest in the mystical and contemplative tradition within Christianity. I'm following after Karl Rahner, the German theologian who said about 50 or 60 years ago, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist. And that's a statement that many people find kind of confounding, but, um, I think we we see we see the shadow side of that right now in terms of we see kind of the collapse of of institutional Christianity and certainly how younger people have you know really rejected uh, the the nationalism within Christianity the sexism the homophobia the transphobia the you know the many ways in which Christianity is is entrenched with systems of privilege so you know so there is certainly A you know we live in a time as the late Phyllis Tickle said we are on the verge of another Reformation and I I think she was really on the money
0: definitely and
3: so you know writing again as somebody who is who I'm not a monk but I'm I'm formed out of the monastic tradition and um and so my book is really a book about the invitation to the pause. The invitation to that that kind of silent place that each one of us carries within our heart—not a place of silencing, not a place of a toxic silence, but a place of that where we are available to that still small voice. And so, you know, on the surface, my book, you know, might look like it's just it's just another spiritual self help kind of a book, you know, the mystical path to a joyful life. But I did try to, you know, widen the conversation to indicate that spiritual self-care really is about equipping ourselves to to use traditional language, to build the kingdom, to to create the beloved community, to work for justice, to work for the dismantling of privilege, and the creation of, of a society that more truly reflects the blessings of Christ and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So, um, so, so, so it is a book of spiritual nurture, but hopefully uh, a book that uh, doesn't just see spiritual nurture as the flight of the alone to the alone, but rather as kind of a breathing in breathing out dynamic that, that we, we nurture ourselves so that we in turn are equipped to be of service.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, Carl, yours is the most recent of any of our books to come out. How, how, How's it gone in terms of the launch? You know, is the pandemic still preventing you from doing the typical book tour kinds of things or not?
3: Yeah. You know, yeah. Life is very different than it was the last time I had a book launch and everything is online. Um, I, um, I actually had an in-person event in August and then I got a positive diagnosis. Oh
0: no! So uh, oh, yeah.
3: No. So I had to cancel that. I, I am vaccinated. So it never got worse than the sniffles you know, but obviously, you know, I had to do the responsible thing. So I had to cancel the event that the, the event presenters were very gracious and and they had me, you know, zoom in. So everybody was gathered at the monastery and there I was like the wizard of Oz, this big head, you know, talking to them. But, um, so I actually have another in-person event scheduled for the first weekend in November. So, you know, uh, maybe I'll actually be able to do that one, but, um, you know, I, I, People ask me all the time, "How's the how's the book doing?" And that's one of the challenges of being, you know, kind of still doing working primarily out of my office. Is I don't know, you know. I I I get a lot of orders on my own website, so I guess that's a good sign, you know. But um, but it's you know this is this is an interesting age, and I think we're we're in this time of reinvention. I think I think COVID is going to change things for all of us in many, many ways, I anticipate that my, my work, my ministry going forward is going to have a much stronger online presence, much less of a traveling and speaking in public. I don't think that'll go away altogether, but, but I think that, you know, that we are, we are trying to reinvent how we do community. And, um, you know, so, so we'll see. How's that for a non-answer? Yeah, right, exactly. Right, well, start?
0: I mean, you know, I feel the same way, Carl. I mean, you know, I come from a high tech background. So before this whole pandemic thing, I was always asking myself, why aren't people doing more webinars? Why aren't you know, more things happening online? Right? Because it breaks down the geographic barriers, it decreases the cost, it makes it easier to include more people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, since the pandemic, everyone has gotten comfortable with using you know, Zoom um, or, or something similar, and the technology is much better than it used to be. And I think that you know, going forward, this is really gonna be much more common.
3: The, the only thing I would also like to add though, Brian, is that I think we have to be really careful about the creation of digital haves and digital have nots.
0: Sure, and So, sure.
3: you know, so if, you know, to, and, and that for no other reason really makes me feel like, you know, the, the calling together of community and the ability for people to meet in person must continue to be a priority for people of faith. So
0: I mean, no, no question about that. Right. But, you know, it's like traveling is expensive too, right? You know, so to do in-person event, at least you know, I, I do writers' conferences, right? Before the pandemic, I did them in various cities all over the country. But if you want to attend it and you don't live in that city, you've got to travel. You've got to pay for a hotel or find somebody to stay with, or you know, whatever. Right? It's just not easy, and it's not it's expensive. So I hear what you're saying, but there's not just a digital divide. You know, I mean, there's an economic divide and and time availability divide, you know, that a lot of folks don't have either one of those to do in-person events either. So, you know, there's trade-offs in every dimension, you know, that we uh, can communicate with. But anyway, (laughs) but Carl, I have to say that you definitely have the coolest shirt. You know, I don't know if you're (laughs) at the coolest table, but you definitely have the coolest shirt. So thank you for wearing that tonight.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My wife is an ice dyer. So that's one of her creations.
0: All right. So next I'd like to kind of get in for you folks to be able to share what else you're reading, you know, folks that, you know, of other people's books, right. That have been particularly inspiring to you lately. So let's go in the same order. Uh, Angela, what what are you reading? Yeah. uh,
2: Well,
1: I'm kind of the typical, you know, author who is in the middle of like maybe 15 books at the same time and <laughs> I'm constantly you know reading online and I subscribe to the LA Times and the Washington Post. So those are my daily reads. And then I have really been enjoying uh Liz Lenz's newsletter lately. Um she has a new book come out coming out soon. She's writes a lot sort of at the intersection of politics, um, gender, and religion, uh, so I really enjoy her. I read Culture Study by Anne Helen Peterson, uh, lots of good stuff there. I'm also the mom of two uh, young boys, so I'm trying to navigate, uh, you know, parenting in the middle of a pandemic and, um, you know, household roles and what those mean as a woman in a male-dominated field, so I find a lot of depth there. Uh, the book that I wanted to make sure to mention too, I wrote this down. Um, (laughs) but, uh, so I've been reading, I think I'm the furthest along in Tomorrow Will Be Better, which is by Betty Smith, who is the author of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and sort of, you know, that quintessential sort of, you know, striving tale of, uh, 20th century white immigrants to Brooklyn, um, but her second book that sort of recently resurfaced this become popular again is the same protagonist from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, but it's her as a young woman and in her first marriage. And it's a much more cynical look at the American dream per se. I'm very interested in the ways that the American dream has historically left many people out. Um, so that book has been a really good read. I'm still in the middle of it in the midst of all my other reading Uh but I appreciate, you know, my own journey too from when Red State Christians first came out, I still had a, a great deal of hope for what dialogue, what relationship could do, what the local church could do. Um, and I've definitely become more cynical in the last few years. Uh, so it's it's been a good read for me.
0: Good, thank you. Jennifer, how about you?
2: So I, one of the things that I'm focusing on right now is um, really looking at some of the harmful stereotypes and some of the harmful expectations that were put on uh, black women and that are sometimes put on women in general. And I'm reading books that fit into that. And so if you talk to most black women and uh, uh, some black girls, they will tell you that they've been told that they need to work twice as hard, that they need to please the people around them. They need to put their will to the side in service of other people. And as I'm walking through that journey myself, I'm looking for authors who speak to that. And so right now, one of the books that I'm reading is Set Boundaries, Find Peace, and it's by uh, Nedra Glover-Tawab. And then I'm also reading uh, You Don't Know Anyone, You Don't Owe Anyone by Carolyn uh, Garnett McGraw, and and that's a Broadleaf. It was published by Broadleaf. And one of the reasons those books are so important is because... I feel like a lot of growing up is unlearning what we've learned when we were coming up and unpacking. And, um, you know, I'm looking for works that affirm some of the messages that that need to be unlearned and some of the things that need to be learned. So I'm really enjoying those. The other thing that I'm doing is that I think it's so important to uh, invest in marginalized writers and marginalized authors or authors who come from marginalized communities, and so I'll just buy books just to support, um just support the authors. And at some point I'll get around to reading all of them. But these are the things that I'm really spending time with. And um quite frankly, it is not only assisting in unlearning, but it's feeding, you know, these things are feeding my spirit.
3: Hmm.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Carl, what about you? What's uh i been on your leading, latest reading list
3: well i'll be tipping my hand about my next book but um which i'm happy to do it will we'll talk we'll about, about that in a minute so uh, okay. hold, hold that. well i'll just i'll just tell the books and then maybe people can get, get some <laughs> sure yes um, we'll
0: for now you can tell us later. And,
3: and and actually people might they might be surprised well well the, the two that i really want to mention that have just made such an impact on me are um linda the bible and the transgender experience Mm-hmm. and austin hartke's transforming the bible and the lives of transgender christians and so transgender theology uh is not something that has i have a lot of knowledge so so this was kind of a new conversation obviously i've done some work like reading becoming nicole you know in terms of just my my interest in in the transgender experience as somebody who is not trans but, um, but these books really connected some dots about, you know, looking at scripture through kind of a transgender lens. So they were just really, um, really, again, impactful in terms of my own, my own relationship with scripture, which I certainly have a troubled relationship with scripture like so many Christians do. Um, I also just have to mention um, T.J. Klune's The House in the Cerulean Sea. Um, you know, I, I have uh, my guilty pleasure is young adult novels. And, and that book is just, it's just a deliciously wonderful. It's funny and it's warm. It's queer affirming. It's just, um, it's just a, a five-star book from beginning to end. So I I, wow. I really would endorse that. And then, and then finally um, I'll just mention, I also have a ministry as a spiritual director. So Janet Ruffings to tell the sacred tale, which is a book about narrative and spiritual direction, which sounds like a very narrow topic, but reading it as a writer, I really saw it as a book about narrative theology, and uh, I I think that's where, you know, the excitement in theology is, you know, that, um, I mean, thinking about, you know, Jennifer talking about the the experience of Black women, you know, the power of of really any person, a a Black woman, a queer person, a trans person, you know, anybody who, who traditionally maybe has not had access to the table where discourse is taking place, it's their narrative, that is so, so important. And especially for somebody like me, for a white male, it's so important for me to receive that narrative. So, um, so narrative theology is very, very important to me. And, and that book has been very helpful in that respect.
0: So. Um, so to tell the sacred tale, that was the name of that last one, Carl?
3: By J- by Janet Ruffing. Yes. And like I said, yeah. it's a book about narrative, sp- the, the use of narrative and spiritual direction. So. That sounds like
0: something that um, I need to look into for writing for your life. Um, that, Probably would be really applicable for that audience, so I need to do that. Um, so, um, Laura had a request. Um, can people write the book titles and authors in the chat? Um, which would really be wonderful if you if you if you wouldn't mind doing that. Uh, after each one of these um, webinars, I've been trying to go back and write down all the books that you know the people have mentioned, and, and for the first two, I was successful in doing that. Um, but I haven't been able to do that uh, for the third one yet because there were so many. Um, So I had to go back and do that. So if you all, you know, when you have a chance, when you're not answering a question, um, if you could go back and and type in um, the the books that you mentioned, that would really be wonderful. Um, So I've got three different books I wanted to mention tonight, you know, through the other seminars, I've been doing um, other books, but um, here's, here's one called um, black and white. Um, The subtitle is Disrupting Racism One Friendship at a Time. So, you know, I've been reading a lot about anti-racism and how do we get ourselves, you know, to address these issues. Um, But, you know, it's always struck me that this is such a grassroots kind of an issue. You know, it's got to be solved at the local level. It's not something that we're going to solve, you know, over the Internet, right, you know, or whatever other. Mechanism that we might have, so that's a really good one. Um, this one, um, "The Upswing" by Robert Putnam, "How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again." So he's a historian, you know, kind of writing and, and talking about the similarities of um, you know different things, different stages America has been in before, and you know what happened then that kind of caused greater cohesiveness um so that's the second one the third one this just arrived in the mail um the other day it the season of advent so many of you know that i also do christian children's book conferences and glenis Nellist has been um the speaker one of the speakers at um all of the conferences that i've done there's another one coming up next week this is her latest book for this year and uh, it's just so beautiful i, I won't you know, show you all the illustrations and everything, but it's just really a gorgeous book. So I wanted to make sure that um, um I talked about that. And uh, Angela mentioned Lenny Duncan. Uh, he, he's he been with us uh, previously on, um um you know, our, our book launch interviews too. And he's written a couple of really excellent books. So I can certainly uh, relate to that. Okay. So, um, Moving on, one of the things that I wanted to try to accomplish with this webinar series is to talk about like really big issues, you know, so we've got way too many, right? We've got too many things right now that are big issues that look like intractable problems uh, in one level. Um, I'd love for each of you to share a little bit about, you know, what you feel are the issues or issue that we really need to pay the most attention to now, and, and what do we do about it? So, again, Angela, if you could start off, off on that, I'd appreciate it.
1: Yeah, man, I drew the short straw tonight, huh? I like to. Sorry,
0: I'm, I'm just trying to do the rotation you now with alphabetical order, so you win. We're
1: good. No,
0: I just. Not, your last name's not Elaine, you know, I mean, <laughs> I always got called on first, you know, and my first name was Brian, right? So, you know, I was at the top of the alphabet, good or bad. That's
1: true. <laughs> No, I always hear uh, when my colleagues or panelists are speaking. I always hear, "Oh shoot, I wanted to say that too." So <laughs> that's all right. Uh, no, I, I was looking at this this question tonight, and for me, um, I often view the view the world through the lens, both of as a pastor, as someone who is actively serving in a Christian community and trying to understand what Christian community can and should look like. Um, at this time in our history and then also i see it through lens of as a journalist and so the overlap between those two that i think is important for us to focus in on is just understanding truth and how we talk about truth when it comes to religion when it comes to christianity uh, when it comes to vaccines when it comes to arguments when it comes to politics um, there has certainly been a diminution of the understanding of, does, does truth exist? Can we say something is true? And of course, we can get into a whole philosophical debate about postmodernism and what truth is. Um, but I, as a, as a Christian and as a theologian, I think that truth is often rooted in narratives and the narratives that we tell ourselves, the narratives that we grow up with. And I certainly see the ways that my congregation here in the rural Midwest is shaped by the narratives of their lives, in contrast to the narratives that have shaped the lives of my urban neighbors, where I live in Minneapolis, who have come from other parts of the world, other parts of the country. Um, So what I think is really important for for Christians and for those of us who care about Christian community is to look at how we can regain some control or some agency over the narratives that are shaping our country right now because right now our narratives are being written by algorithms that are grounded in profit. And so the profit motive has shaped so much of the ways that we understand ourselves as Americans and even the ways that Christians understand ourselves. Um, so I think it's really important, you know, to go back to a lot of basics. And before we get into all these major issues of racism, sexism, poverty, uh, economic injustice, abortion, capital punishment, all things that are representative of of the evil in our world today i think that we need to break down uh, the narratives that people are understanding the ways that truth has been diminished and reclaim a space to say you have your opinion i have my opinion but there is a truth somewhere out there that we are going to have to come to and things cannot be equal without looking at that central truth Um, so I think that's, that's the most important thing for me is getting back to acknowledgement of truth and truth's grounding in the central narratives that we teach one another and going from there. I mean, like I said, I've gotten more cynical over the last few years and I've been doing this work for a long time and I've been doing it in communities that have been decimated by misinformation, communities that have been decimated by hatred um so i think we really have to get back to basics and before we say how divided we are or before we define ourselves according to terms like liberal or conservative we actually have to define what those terms mean today Um, because what once passed for conservative has been replaced by an ideology that is much more grounded in authoritarianism than it is in traditional conservatism
0: Mm -hmm. wow very powerful Um, and I hate to ask this question, but what do you see as the mechanisms to deal with reestablishing truth?
1: Well, as when I put on my, like my journalist hat, um, I think that, you know, there's some important work being done by some nonprofits, um, places like ProPublica, places that are trying to fund journalism that is rooted in something other than a profit motive, Um Even, you know, mainstream media sources have been sort of compromised by their having to adhere to a profit motive. Um, So I think some of that nonprofit-supported journalism is really important. Um, I think we also have to look at, you know, I went to journalism school. I went to the University of Missouri, which is a very good journalism school. Um, But as I came up in journalism and as I worked for newspapers um, and as I've continued to work in journalism, I've noticed... How part of the critique that often comes from from the right, which is I don't think this is a right left critique, but part of the critique is that so much of American media comes from the same elite social circles um, that make up much of power in America. And so I think that's something that we have to look at as well is um, the ability of of journalists and of media outlets. To tell stories from the perspective of people that are marginalized, um, and not to continue to sort of fall into the same old stories every time. Yeah, you know, and I also I didn't mention, but um, I subscribe to it another newsletter uh, that sort of breaks down. I'm gonna Heather Cox Richardson. Her oh, newsletter yeah. is very important in breaking yep. down sort of how. We often sort of tell the same story about you know, the media tries to set themselves in the middle and this is the, what the Republicans think, this is what the Democrats think, um, when we're actually in a situation when we have you know, half of our political leaders actively seeking to kind of destroy the government. So you can't tell those same old stories every time. And I think pointing out, uh, Margaret Sullivan is another uh, media columnist for the Washington Post who often points out the ways in which our old narratives are no longer sufficient
0: Thank you, Angela. Uh, very important. Very powerful. Jan, how about you?
2: I think that um, some of the issues that keep me up and that I think about about a ton are justice issues, um, climate justice, uh, racial justice, you know, reproductive justice. And my concern with all these issues is that the same communities that are impacted by the climate crisis are also the same communities that are adversely impacted um, by attacks on voting rights, by attacks on reproductive rights. And so it's the same communities that are being hit over and over and over and over again. The one exception is, you know, climate justice, it impacts all of us but it's the frontline communities that bear the disproportionate toll. They are least likely, or they, you know, they emit the smallest, they have the smallest footprint, but they pay the heaviest toll. And this was driven home for me recently um, after Hurricane Ida. And I thought about coastal Mississippi and also Louisiana, they've been hit over and over again, but these communities still have not recovered from the trauma of COVID-19. They're still grappling. And so I feel that, um, you know, on the one hand, I feel that if we're not careful, these kind of issues and these concerns can drive us into our own back into our to stay with our with our own. And I think that as people of faith, we have to resist that tendency and we have to really do as the Bible commanded and mourn with those who mourn and celebrate with those who celebrate. Um, but one of the things that, that really disturbs me is that um, I sometimes feel the people who we elect, not enough of them feel the urgency and are willing to sacrifice all to address these kinds of issues. I feel like sometimes the church is too passive in addressing these kinds of issues. Um, we're at a critical stage. And you know when you're at a critical stage, the incrementalism that maybe you would have de- at an earlier phase, it does not work. And so I'm very, very concerned. And I am quite frankly afraid because while some of us can weather different storms better than others, we've been asking marginalized communities to to bear a lot and to be resilient in the face of trauma after trauma, after trauma, after trauma. And there is a breaking point. And I want to see, you know, I want to see more action from the church around these issues. I want the community to look to the church in a way that I don't know that we're really doing now.
0: Thank you. Carl.
3: Um, I'm so tempted to kind of take a page from Angela and say, well, what they said. Um, But I heard Angela speak so beautifully about truth. And then Jennifer speak so um, eloquently about justice, and so as I was listening to the two of you, I was thinking about a book that I I first read, you know, a little while ago, and then a conversation I had with with an Episcopal priest about 25 years ago. So I'll start with the priest, and that was a man named Zippo Mizamela, and Zippo eventually became. Uh, a member of Nelson Mandela's cabinet. He was from South Africa. He was here in the United States because he was a wanted man in South Africa during the apartheid regime. If he had gone back, he would have just gone straight to jail, and probably would have ended up, you know, the fate of Stephen Biko or someone like that. But after Nelson Mandela was elected, Sipo was, um, was you know, apparently highly placed politically in South Africa. Ended up being in Nelson Mandela's. Uh, cabinet Zippo married my wife and me. He was the priest Ooh. who officiated at our marriage, and um, and when you know, so we got to know him over the over our you know marriage journey. And I remember so clearly we were having a conversation one time. I don't remember the specifics, but you know the news cycle had been about violence in South Africa, and like I say, you got to remember this as well: apartheid is still happening. And and I said to Zippo, you know, living as an Episcopal priest in Atlanta, obviously far far away from the land that he loved. I said what's the path forward for South Africa and his answer really surprised me. He said there must be hope. He said we have to find a way to give hope to everyone black and white the you know across the spectrum because it is the absence of hope that is leading to the violence and that has created the tinderbox that we that we are exhibiting. And so that you know that has just stayed with me for so long, and then the book I want to mention is Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited sure. which as as you know you all may know, was the book that Martin Luther King jr. carried with him at all times. It was found in his briefcase after he was murdered and um you know, and Thurman, of course, is writing in the nineteen forties and it's difficult to read that book because it's just a reminder, and again, speaking as a white person, but to read that and to see, oh, we've come so little in such a long time, and to really feel the burden of history and the burden of the persistence of racial injustice in in our country. But Thurman, who is absolutely clear-headed and and unstinting in his critique of, of Jim Crow racism, the racism of the 1940s, did such an amazing job at speaking about the necessity of dismantling racism from that perspective of you know Christian hope. I mean, he was a Baptist minister, so certainly out of, out of his faith journey. And so it seems to me that hope is what we need to do the hard work that we need to do. Any of the issues that have been mentioned tonight are, are issues that that many people find themselves simply overwhelmed by. And, um, you know, I mean, again, speaking as a, as a white male, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that w- white males and anybody else who is the beneficiary of social privilege, we have to dismantle privilege and we have to take the lead in being dismantlers of privilege. And, and many of us are frightened about that. We are overwhelmed by that. We do not even know the first step to take. And we understand that people who, who have been denied privilege are not the people who should be teaching us. We have to figure this out. We created the mess. We have to uncreate it. So, so we need hope. The, the people who have been hurt, the people who have been traumatized, the people who have, been the, the, who have borne the brunt of injustice need hope so that they can continue to lead. They are the people who must lead as, as we all partner together to create a truly just society. So, so, you know, kind of, you know, again, following Angela, you know, let's start with the basics. Yes, we need truth. Yes, we need a commitment to justice and we need the hope to help us to, to, to see, see that fight through.
0: So. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, let me ask you the same question that I asked Angela a moment ago. What are the mechanisms by which we, Grow hope.
3: Well, um, you know, narrative has come up a lot in this conversation, and I think we have to find a way to hear everyone's story. And, and, And those of us who are maybe more accustomed to being able to tell our stories and maybe haven't been as accustomed to listen, we need to listen. We have got to listen to the stories of people who have not historically had the opportunity to have their stories heard. So, so you know, so what, creating How do we make
0: that? Just from a pragmatics now. I agree with you, hundred percent. How do we make it happen?
3: Well, um, like I can tell you, encountering silence. And we're just a tiny little podcast, but we really do try to um, to make sure that we foreground voices of people of color, queer voices, you know, women in, before men. We all have to look at ways that we can make a difference, even if it's a small difference, because a lot of small differences will add up to one big difference. So I I think, you know, it's it's a lie to say I have no power or I have no authority. We all have to look at how can I make a difference? You know, I live in Clarkston, Georgia, which is uh, a refugee settlement community, one of the most ethnically diverse communities, not only in the state of Georgia, but really in North America. And so, you know, this is, you know, the, the thing that I have to look at, you know, am I forming relationships with the refugee people who are my neighbor's? You know, and, and that's probably true of many of us. Who are our neighbors who are different from us? Can we find a way to reach out to them? And that's hard. That's, it's, it's hard work. This is not easy work, yeah. Yeah. but it's vital work. And, and hopefully uh, churches are taking the lead. I know every, every congregation is different in terms of how it is meeting the needs of this moment. But, you know, it, I mean, if your church ain't doing it, maybe the church two blocks down is, you know, and sometimes we have to vote with our feet. But I think I think we have to start small uh, but but do the work we're called to do I
0: mean that's the way it strikes me. you know it has to be universal I mean it has to be grassroots has to be everywhere yeah. so um the next question has to do with kind of you know the bipolarization of the political sphere that we have and and the overlap of that political sphere with the religious sphere um, so you know, there's, in a, in a, you know, I'm, I'm going to use stereotypical words, I know. But, you know, there's progressive Christians and there are conservative or fundamentalist, you know, Christians. And um, there's part of me that says, does that matter? You know, should we do anything about it? Um, and there's, you know, the other part of me says, well, of course we have to do something about it. But I'd love to hear each of your thoughts. Um on that and and maybe this time Jennifer you want to go first
2: sure so um I I sometimes struggle with labels you know labels are a good way to help us identify different folks but I think that if we're not careful labels can also be a way to allow us to think that we are farther along than we are And sometimes I think that just by saying, oh, I'm, you know, a progressive Christian or I'm liberal, that we give ourselves points that maybe our work has not earned. The bigger question for me is, are we all doing our individual work? Carl, I so love what you said, because I think that, you know, if we get to a place where we're hopeless, we just check out and we just say, it is what it is. I can't impact it. But I think that there's something that we can each do. And I think that our journey, our journey exists as long as we're here on Earth, regardless of what we call ourselves. You know, I can I can say that, you know, I'm a social justice, uh, I'm a social justice author and communicator. But that means that I also have to be doing my work, even as a black woman. You know, there are areas in which I have blind spots. There are areas in which uh, I'm privileged. And so my work continues. All of our works continues. I feel like one of the biggest myths and, and where we get in trouble is we think that just by calling ourselves a Christian, that that absolves ourselves of the work that we need to do or that we somehow can't be, um, we somehow can't be racist, somehow can't be um, sexist, you know, but we contribute to all of that regardless of the label that, that we carry. And so part of what we're supposed to be doing is unpacking it regardless of what we call ourselves.
0: Thank you. Carl, how about you?
3: Well, um, so how do we bridge the divide? Is that the question? Yeah,
0: basically. Uh,
3: um, well, I think we, we have to find some way to listen, but also to tell the truth. You know, back, to, back to Angela's comment about the truth matters and that the, our own truth matters. Um, You know, I live in Georgia, you know, and even though Georgia went went blue the last election, you know, it was by a razor thin margin, Georgia has historically been a red state. And so I know many people, you know, that are in my life, you know, who, who do not think the way I do do not vote the way I do. And, and it's, you know, especially in this day and age when you as soon as you get onto social media, you know, I, I, I can't remember which of you mentioned the algorithm of profit. But, you know, I mean, that's what social media is. And we immediately get channeled into, you know, situations. And what what I really have to watch out for is when I'm delivered up um, content that that shames or makes fun of the people who don't think or vote like I do. And I'm very suspicious of, of content like that. I don't think content like that is helpful. It's content that is designed to make me feel good about myself you know i'm better than those blankety blank fundamentalists or those blankety blank trumpites or those blankety blank straight white male privileged types etc and i think we we have to meet that temptation with a dose of humility and you know that that you know jennifer's comment that there's a level on which many of us have some measure of privilege you know many of us have have um you know have the have opportunities that are denied to other people or or we are the, we are the beneficiaries of certain social or economic or you know whatever kind of privileges that is at the expense of others and and we have to interrogate that and it's hard work it's not it's not easy work but but it's vital work and it's important work and if we can find a way to do it together then then it has to happen you know i think I think you know it it is instructive to remember that that Political division has always been with us, so it's not like we're going we're gonna to make these divisions just go away. But I think we, we have to find some way where we can we can enter into the the reality that there are different different narratives, there are different philosophies, there are different viewpoints, without knee jerk demonizing the other. And and I think. You know, if everybody is demonizing me, then I have to stop demonizing them. It's easy for me, easier for me to say that because of my educational background, my economic background, my status as a white person, etc. I I understand that. Well, you know, it's got to start somewhere, and um, you know, and so I I think you know any any interaction, any political issue, any moment that arises, you know, the question I guess we all have to ask: Am am I Am I going to just give in to anger that not a not a healthy anger, a righteous anger, an anger that that wants to reform and transform, but I'm talking about the anger that destroys, the anger that corrodes. Am I going to give in to that anger or am I going to give in to despair? Am I going, you know, am I going to give in to kind of a a bitter cynicism? You, Angela, you mentioned you're you're cynical. I just hope it's not a bitter cynicism. You know, I think I think cynicism is like anything else. There's cynicism and there's there's cynicism. The bitter cynicism, I think, is the one that leads leads to inaction. You know, it's all of this is a process. And and so the question has to be, you know, how are the choices I'm I'm faced with today, how do they lead to something different tomorrow? You know, a, a friend of mine who's a Trappist monk, he asks the question, am I giving birth to angels? with my actions, and with my words. And I think wherever we are in the cycle, whether we're, we're people who've been traumatized, people who've been victimized, people who've been hurt, or we're just people who are the beneficiaries of privilege, wherever we are, that's the question we all have to ask. Are the choices I'm making today giving birth to angels?
0: So, Thank you, Carl. Um, Angela, are you okay with um, hanging in there? Or.
1: I'm okay. Yeah, I'm at 6%, so we'll see. I may jump on my phone in a minute. Sure. Um, I see my church members coming in for our meeting tonight, uh, but this this work and this question has, has represented much of the work that I have attempted to do, and when my book first came out pre-pandemic, uh, a lot of the places that I was doing events titled them uh, Finding Hope in a Divided Country. Um, now, as I said, I've become A bit cynical since then. Uh, I just got my warning message, so I'll pop back on my phone if I go out. Um, But I wanted to actually read a passage from the Bible real quick, uh, from Luke 1249. Uh, And I think we have to keep this in mind when we talk about political division, particularly those of us in white mainline denominations that have often been guilty of the label of white moderate and have, with our voices, given assent to anti-racism, with our voices, given assent to justice movements. um, but have continued to live pretty comfortably and not followed up our words with our actions. Uh, so we have maybe taken a label that we have not earned, as Jennifer had stated. Uh, so Luke twelve forty nine, Jesus says, I came to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So I think sometimes we have to realize that Jesus, some of the work that Jesus does is the work of division. It is the work of dividing. Sometimes we're called to stand on a side. Um, and maybe I'm preaching to myself here, but I think I'm preaching to a lot of a lot of white so-called liberal Christians um, is sometimes we are called to, to take a stand in a stand that may be uh, costly. And so I think, do we worry about the division in Christianity? I think where I worry about it is, I've spent a lot of my life in spaces where it is just assumed that if you are Christian and you go to church, you're Republican. That is that is just a taken for granted fact in a lot of America. And I think that that is dangerous when a religion has become so overly identified with a political party. um, I think that's quite dangerous and speaks to the level with which Christianity in America has been uh, entrenched into white Christian nationalism, because that narrative leaves out any Christians who are not white <laughs> in a very profound way.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Angela. Um, so just to finish off, um, I wanted to end on a little bit lighter note for each of you to talk a little bit about what, you know, your future work looks like. And I know you've touched on that a little bit, but Angela, since you're running out of time and power, would you like to <laughs> go first?
1: Yeah, thank you. I'll give it quickly. Um, so we have the new edition and excited. Sounds like both Jennifer and I have our paperbacks coming out next fall. Uh, so looking forward to the new edition. We're moving from understanding the voters who elected Donald Trump, getting Trump's name off my cover, um, and into uh, a journey into white Christian nationalism and the wreckage it leaves behind in the aftermath of COVID, um, George Floyd and the insurrection. Uh, also, I have, I'm hard at work on a second book proposal working with my agent to get it out there. Um, But the working title is my grandpa's granddaughter. uh, What killed him and saved me. My grandpa was a pastor working at the time of Vietnam, working at the time of civil rights. And he was driven out of churches. He died saying he would never set foot in the Lutheran church again. Uh, He died very much rejected by the American church, rejected by American Christianity and deep in despair the in fair, And um, as his granddaughter, becoming a minister myself, I often have been ashamed to say, you know, this was my grandpa, this was his life in ministry, um, because he did not have a great reputation. But what he did do, was work very hard for justice. What he did do was speak out very powerfully. What he did do to the end of his life was continue to minister, continue to be deeply rooted in scripture, deeply rooted in the actual work of the gospel, of visiting, of caring for those who were without, of uh, dwelling with the marginalized. Um, so his legacy and his story has shaped a lot of my ministry and has also you know, been real in my own rejection from certain Christian spaces, has been my own you know, journey of um, disillusionment with the institutional church, my disillusion with disillusionment with the white evangelical spaces that I once ministered in. Um, so we're working on that. It's a labor wow. of love. but That really that.
0: sounds amazing. So look forward to that.
1: Thank you so much for doing this. I will, I'll hang on and try and listen to these guys before I run off to my council meeting, but I'm so glad to be with both of you and with you, Brian. So I look forward to, reading more of your work and
2: thank you to everyone who joined us.
0: Thanks very much, Angela. Jennifer, how about you?
2: So um making some some edits to first and only uh, because it'll come out again in the fall of 2022. So that's where I am right now. That's the pressing thing. But um, my next book will focus on some of the um, some of the struggles and triumphs of single single mothers and what mothering really means, what it has evolved to today in the American context, and also um, African indigenous roots in terms of what it means to mother. So really, really excited about, about that and hoping to spark a conversation about how we engage with single mothers and how we think about uh, motherhood.
0: Wonderful, well, we'll look forward to that, thank you. Carl, how about you?
3: Well, I'm really excited. In fact, I think this is the first time I've publicly shared this, but I'm excited to say that, that Broadleaf has optioned my next book. Uh, the working title, titles can change, but the working title is How to Read the Bible Like a Mystic. Hmm. And so the so you can see why I'm reading. You know, I'm trying to, to get, you know, different perspectives on scripture, you know, reading, reading womenist theology, queer theology, transgender theology, obviously just a variety of perspectives, but it's not just about, um, you know, about all the voices around the table, as important as I believe that is, but it's also about trying to recover um, a, an imaginative while also um, critical approach to the text. And so, you know, acknowledging that, that, you know, the important insights of, of historical critical scholarship and, you know, the, the good work that biblical scholars have done over the past certainly several hundred years uh, remains vital in terms of, of our ability to, to understand and enter into the text. But then also to kind, of, to kind of excavate some of the practices, and many of which have been revived in our time, Lectio Divina, Ignatian uh, composition of place. You know, th- those kinds of practices that are a little bit more spiritually oriented. And my argument is that, is that you know, a, a well-rounded scriptural diet really needs both. So, so we, need, we need the many voices that help us to, to read the text from a variety of perspectives. We also need the authority of our own hearts. And, um, and, and we need to uh, bring that hope and bring that ability to dream into the text while at the same time recognizing that the text will will challenge us. Uh, certainly, I'm going to uh, argue that, um, that we need a post-fundamentalist uh, narrative for how to read the text. We need to allow the Bible to sometimes set a bad example and to be able to talk about that honestly. So, um, so I, I think it's going to be fun. Um, I'm just at the beginning process. Probably we're looking at a 2024 pub date. So it'll be a while, but stay tuned. And, you know, it should be coming out.
0: So. Well, good works take a long time to come to fruition. So uh, yeah. that's, that's understandable. So, so thank you, um, Carl and Jennifer and Angela, for joining us. And I look forward to, you know, doing interviews with you about your new books. Um, and thank you, everyone else, for participating in this and, and joining us. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we'll have another um, series of webinars in January with an additional set of authors. And so um, we wish for you to uh, stay tuned and join us that. Again, thanks everyone and um, enjoy the best as you can the rest of the year. Take care.
3: Thank you.